0: A British Airways 747 is making a series of hops on its way to New Zealand when something goes wrong. What causes this flight to make an emergency landing in Jakarta?
1: welcome back to the hard landings podcast everybody i'm nick
2: i'm miranda and i'm christy and today we have
1: me (laughs) hey me
2: (laughs) this is leo my youngest brother
1: don't hold
3: it against me though that was
1: like the most you thing you could have done (laughs) well
2: you'll note he also has a much deeper voice than jay the middle child yes i do
1: yes yes which is funny because you also are like the smallest of the three. I of never you.
3: thought that about myself.
1: Yes, you have the lowest voice. You're by the far. only
2: one who can reach bass notes.
1: Wild. I would have never put that together. <laughs> <laughs> We've been trying to get him to be on here actually for a long time, but he's been all nah. And so this time he's all yeah.
2: Which also he listens to more podcasts than we do. Yes. So. He
1: does. But also we needed somebody for this one because Miranda already knew the story. So
0: yeah. Oh, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm in for the surprise. Oh, man, are you in for a surprise?
0: (laughs) To be fair, I probably wouldn't have gotten mad at this one anyway, so.
1: Yeah, this isn't really necessarily a get mad one. Yeah. But it is quite the mystery. It is. This is uh, definitely something we've never covered before, and it is very interesting.
0: And thank you to Helen Helen for recommending this episode.
1: Which, speaking of Helen, thank you for upgrading your Patreon.
2: Helen is now a member of the flight crew. Yeah. We just sent your patches for you and for Kate. So, y'all should get those in the nearish future
0: or yeah. have already gotten them by the time this episode comes out. I
2: mean, I'm not counting on international being great, but I mean, that's okay. The other two got theirs, so eventually.
1: Yeah, pretty quick. But anyway, those of you that are not already a patron, you should be, and those that are, thanks. Since so this
2: is the first time we're recording since it's happened. Yes. Yes, we are very aware of United flight 328. Yes, yes, it did happen very close to us. It
1: flew right over our house, actually. After... this We're not... We weren't where the debris fell, but no. a, on its path back to DIA. But, oh, was that when the, the wing fell apart? The no.
2: engine? Engine. Yes.
1: Uh.
2: Parts of the engine actually fell very close to Nick's grandmother, yes. so that was fun.
1: Within two miles. Yeah. Wow.
2: Two, uh, some of it fell in a park where she takes her dogs. Yep.
1: So, that's fun. Yes, we're well aware of it, and... The most I can say, because we don't like to speculate much, but it is pretty clearly a fan blade failure.
2: That is almost indisputable at this point. The NTSB has even said it, so I'm not...
1: And the thing is, too, is if you go read up on it, it is also a pattern, which is the reason that they're actually... I mean, first of all, this got a lot of media coverage because it was in a very public place and there was a lot of videos and such, but there's actually a pattern happening. This is by far and away not the first one in recent years only Pratt & Whitney engine, and also they grounded all the airplanes because of this. So it is, pretty much everything is pointing to the direction of a fan blade failure, leading to an uncontained engine failure.
2: If you want to listen to episodes about fan blade failures, please refer to episode 1, which was United 232, also leaving from Denver.
1: Arguably the most important uncontained engine failure in history.
2: Yep. Southwest flight 1380 was episode 53. And the episode before that was our anniversary episode. Episode 52 was American Airlines Flight 383 in 2016, not in 1965.
1: Yeah, that is all.
0: Okay, so what are we covering today, Nick?
1: All right. Today we are covering British Airways Flight 9. So, a bunch of aviation nerds just went, ooh. Yeah.
3: Yeah, for me, nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah, for
1: you, <laughs> not a freaking clue. And that's okay. This happened on June 24th of 1982. So right about the time, actually, of UA232. Fun fact. Fun factoid. Yep. This was a 747-200. More specifically, it was a 236 b model. It had the tail number Golf-Bravo-Delta-X-Ray-Hotel. So the 747s were not really new to the world in 1982, but uh, they were still the queens of the sky. They were very much the... The ultimate airplane, really, at the time. The captain for this flight was Eric Moody. He was 41 years old, and he was the first captain to train on the 747 for British Airways. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. The first officer was Barry Townley Freeman. He was 40 years old. By the way, I can't, there's no hours for anybody.
2: There's no report.
1: There's no report for this incident. I'll get into it. Yes. That, so we'll
0: get into why that is later, yeah.
1: So we used many other resources to try to pull this story and analysis yep. and everything together.
2: Namely the Air Disasters episode
1: and our good friends Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> and the Aviation Safety Network page. Oh, thank God. So <laughs> I thought you all were just smart.
3: I know. <laughs> I just wow. knew this. God. Was, Hard was, hit, Leo. I was sitting here for minutes, and I'm like, I know I'm 5'7", but I feel intellectually short right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we had to use the resources we could because there was no report for this one, and normally we would do a report. But this one is quite the story, so you're in for a ride anyways. Anyways, the flight engineer was Roger Greaves. He was 32 years old, so he was the youngest in the flight deck. The flight, are you ready for this? Was supposed to be from London, Heathrow, to Bombay, in India, to Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, to Perth, Australia, to Melbourne, Australia, to Auckland, New Zealand. <laughs> and some people were along for the whole ride.
0: I feel bad for them. Wow. That's yeah. a long flight. With
1: all those stopovers, it is probably about two days. And that is rough. Ouch. So there used to be a flight that was performed from Australia to London, known as the Double Sunrise, and it was a very small flight long before this, that is still, I think, the world record longest commercial flight in history for time, because those people would be on board and they had to make multiple fuel stops, but they had to very specifically cross India, or not India, I think it was maybe Pakistan, at night, because they didn't want to be seen. Great. Mm. Because they were not friends. All sneaky-beaky-like. Yeah. So, in any case, but it was literally a double sunrise because those people, the, like, eight passengers on board, would literally go through two whole sunrises Sunrises. to get to their destination.
2: For the record, yes, this flight number is still used. You may or may not have been on it. It currently flies from London Heathrow to Bangkok. Yep. Which some of you know is an indication of the end result of this incident.
1: So... Quite the uh, path, but today we will be talking about the Kuala Lumpur to Perth leg, so somewhere kind of in the middle of this whole thing. There were to be 248 passengers and 15 crew for the leg from Kuala Lumpur to Perth. Some of the passengers had already been traveling for nearly an entire day to get to this point. Yeah. Yep.
0: No thanks. I'm good. Yeah. I'm chill.
1: The crew, however, was swapped at Kuala Lumpur, so the crew that was now flying this leg was fresh. They were ready to go, and they had not been traveling for a day, (laughs) thankfully. I don't have the time that they took off, and I could not find that anywhere, but they departed sometime quite late in the evening, right around 8.30, I would say. 8.15, maybe. 8.40 p.m., the flight was over the Indian Ocean just off the coast of Indonesia. The passengers and the cabin crew started to notice a strange thick smoke starting to form in the cabin. Now, at the time, smoking was still very legal in the cabin of airplanes, so it wasn't really that strange. They were just thinking, man, somebody is smoking something strong. But the cabin crew were still a little worried, so they thought maybe there was a fire on board from a cigarette that somebody still had lit and threw it in a trash can or something.
2: Please refer to... Episode 58, which was Air
0: Canada Flight 797. Oh, that
1: happened? That has happened.
0: They think that's what happened. They don't actually know. On that one. So they have no idea what happened.
1: Right. About the same time in the cockpit, the crew checked the instruments and the weather radar, which showed 300 nautical miles of clear skies ahead so the captain stepped away to go to the restroom as they reached their cruising altitude of flight level 370, or 37,000 feet. And then the first officer reported this to the Jakarta Center air traffic controller, that they were at their cruising altitude, so 37,000 feet. Almost immediately after the captain left the cockpit, the first officer began to notice that there was some streaking light, almost like St. Elmo's fire, on the windshield, which is typically seen when flying through a thunderstorm. But the radar was clear. And they don't also they also just don't usually encounter thunderstorms up that high. So Saint Alban's Fire is this very strange light effect uh, across the windscreens and across the airframe. So it is this strange kind of like miniature lightning, it's electrifying on the windshield.
2: I'll talk more about it later too.
1: Yes. So they were seeing this weird light effect on the windshield, and they noticed this, but nothing really out of the ordinary, per se. So, the first officer and the flight engineer were sitting there kind of like, huh, strange.
0: What the heck? Yeah. What's going on?
1: Right. The cabin crew were quickly but discreetly still checking all of the lavatories for possible fire from a lit cigarette when the seatbelt sign was turned on. First officer turned it on out of an abundance of caution. The plane was experiencing some light turbulence at the time. The passengers began to notice the strange streaking light effect on the wings and the windows, too, so the passengers could see it. The first officer also then turned on the engine anti-ice, just in case, just in case they were, for whatever reason, flying through a cloud that they couldn't see. The captain returned to the cockpit, and the first officer and the flight engineer filled him in on what was happening. The smoke began growing thicker in the cabin, and some passengers and cabin crew noticed that the smoke was pouring in from the air vents above the windows. That's not a good thing.
0: Also, not normal.
1: Right. That means it's coming... It doesn't sound normal. No, that means it's coming in through the actual air system. Into the airplane. Some of the passengers suddenly noticed that the engines were shooting flames! About 40 to 50 feet long behind the wing. That's a little... Disturbing?
3: Yeah.
0: Well, it's probably... It's kind of funny that we talked about an engine failure at the beginning of this episode. Because yes. can you imagine looking outside and going, Oh, no. What the heck is that?
1: Just <laughs> your passengers.
0: You don't know what's going on. There's just flames.
1: Just flames. A lot of flames.
3: And... You know what you look for in a moment like that? You look at the flight attendant's eyes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because
3: like, if they're... Worried, sweating.
1: Yeah, you <laughs> like should be twitching sweating underneath their left eye. Then you should yeah. <laughs> be
0: twitching. <laughs> you should be underneath underneath
1: concerned. <laughs> you should be a little more than concerned. So yes, this was uh, quite strange, and the passengers were definitely alarmed by said fire. And this was about the point that the passengers realized that something was very wrong. At eight forty-two p.m. The baffled and confused crew's worst nightmares began to come true when the number four Rolls-Royce RB211 engine surged and then shut down uncommanded.
2: Which, for reference, is the engine on the right wing that is furthest from the fuselage. It is the outboard right engine.
1: So if you were looking top down on the airplane, it is one through four left to right. So this is a 747, so it's a big four-engine airplane. The flight crew, using their heavy training, began running the engine shutdown procedure for the number four engine, or as they called it at the time, drill, not procedure. They called them drills, kind of an old British term, but now in the industry it's standardized as procedure. Less than a minute later, the number two engine surged as well and then flamed out and shut down. Uh Uh-oh. So now they've got a serious problem on their hands.
0: They got one engine on the left wing and one engine on the right wing.
1: Yep. Yep. Then within a few seconds, the remaining two engines surged and shut down as well. So now they have lost all four engines they had. Wow. Zero power at 37,000 feet. And this is mind-blowing because for one, normally airplanes don't have problems at cruising altitude. It's very rare. Though we have talked about a few. Two, this was the first time that a 747 had ever had a full four-engine failure. That is terrible and horrifying. Granted, the crews were trained for this, but they were in shock. The cabin then became quiet, with the engine sounds gone. Um some passengers explained it as That's terrifying. Yes. Some passengers very eerie. Ex- <laughs> yes. Some passengers explained it as as they imagine the sound of space being. Just eerie oh. silence.
0: Oh. I got chills from that. I don't yes. like that.
1: It is that is a horrifying thing. I've heard that from quite a few Actually, incidents like this where there's uh, full engine failures, where it just goes very quiet, and that is just disturbing. Ugh. The first officer radioed Jakarta Center and declared an emergency, but the controller had difficulty understanding them until another airplane relayed the message. Originally, the air traffic controller thought they said they had lost just the number four engine. What the first officer was trying to tell him is that they had lost all four engines. So it took quite some time before the middle airplane relayed the message to Jakarta, and Jakarta actually understood at that point. They were then told to squawk 7700, which is the squawk code on the transponder, which is how the air traffic controller sees them. That code is generally arbitrary given by the air traffic controller to the flight, depending on the situation, but 7700 specifically is a generic emergency code. That means the airplane is in distress, so it has priority over everything. The crew used their training again and began the engine restart procedure for all four engines. The airplane began to fall from its altitude, however, because there was no thrust. So, at 37,000 feet, the airplane can't very well maintain altitude. The airplane was capable of a 15 to 1 glide ratio, which means it is capable of covering about 15 nautical miles for every mile it drops. So... That's a pretty good distance, in reality. They determined it was about 91 miles, and they had about 23 minutes of time before they would strike the water. The engine restart procedure did not work, however. The captain began turning back toward Jakarta, as it was the closest airport to them. The captain reported to the air traffic controller that they were turning back, and the controller said that they could not see the flight on their radar which was quite dangerous because you don't know if the flight could be crossing through other airplanes flight paths you don't know if they could be approaching an object very rapidly mind you this is before ground proximity warning systems were really super implemented
0: a thing yeah
1: they were a thing but not quite at a thing th- yeah quentin not a at thing, the level
0: but not a thing
1: and especially we're talking about a 747 200 which even then it wasn't necessarily old But the technology wasn't what was coming. The crew continued to try the restart procedure for the engines, using an abbreviated version to try to save some time between their attempts. Nobody had any idea why all these things were happening, why they were seeing strange light on the windows, and why the engines flamed out, and why they were falling from the sky. All of this was just had everybody in shock. The aircraft had to be in a certain speed range for the restart procedure to work, so the crew had to keep it, I think it was between, what was it, 290 and 310 knots, so pretty fast. But this was in order to keep the, basically, the engines windmilling enough that a restart that procedure would restart actually yeah. kick start the engine. The captain tried to keep it in that range, but after a discussion with the first officer, they both realized that their airspeed indicators were 50 knots separated so one side... 50. Five, zero. Five, zero. So one So the captain's airspeed indicator was indicating significantly higher than the first officer's airspeed indicator. Oof. Flip a coin? So Pretty flip a one. coin. <laughs> That's kind of where they were at. At this point, the captain began oscillating the airplane up and down, attempting to get the correct speed blindly, basically.
2: So he's like, 100 knots this way and 100 knots that way, and we'll hit it. Somehow, right? Yes, it's
1: like trying to thread a needle. They were trying to find that exact spot where the airplane would restart. Wow. This added to the chaos for the passengers as that oscillating maneuver definitely could make you sick, and when you're just in all of this shock from the engine shutting down and smoke in the cabin, this is just... Not great
0: you're like not having a good time
1: not having a good time and also you're no
0: going one up likes it at
3: all no one likes a silent roller coaster by the way <laughs> yeah, nobody <laughs> no. likes a silent it roller coaster. sounds terrible it that
1: is sounds pretty horrible. horrible it is pretty horrible uh-huh. suddenly as the plane crossed through twenty six thousand feet the crew received a cabin altitude alert which alerts the crew that the cabin pressure was above ten thousand feet so typically airplanes pressurized airplanes are kept at a cabin altitude of about 8,000 feet. So that's the equivalent breathing oxygen level of 8,000 feet, being at 8,000 feet. So that's just breathing altitude. So once it gets to that 10,000 foot mark, the alerts usually go off, and this is still standard. Alert will go off in the, the cockpit to tell them, hey, the airplane is depressurizing. This kind of makes sense because the airplanes are pressurized by the engines. Once you have no engines, no longer do you have a pressurized cabin. So it's slowly losing pressure. The captain donned his oxygen mask and began diving for 20,000 feet to try to be in a safe zone for breathing. The first officer's oxygen mask, however, separated from the hose when he pulled it down from above his head. Oops. Yep. The oxygen masks in the cabin for the passengers then deployed, which frightened the passengers, of course. So much like everything else, <laughs> yeah, <you're- laughs>
3: nothing can induce a panic in hundreds of people than the masks coming
1: down on yes. a plane. Well, the mask came down, and the airplane is now diving much faster than normal, and it's full of smoke, and the engines aren't working. Yeah, so, so you
0: just saw the engines go out. There's smoke entering the cap or the cabin. You see that the engines aren't working. It's very quiet. You're going up and down, and then the masks fall down. Yes. The th- plane
3: isn't silent anymore. <laughs> yeah. Not no. anymore. Well,
0: There's and, some screams. And the whole time, the flight attendants
2: to this point had been like, oh, no, it's just a technical issue. And now they're like, well,
1: I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> folks. <laughs> kind of. Kind of, yes. Yeah. Which, by the way, by this time, the passengers had not heard anything over the PA system from the crew about what was happening, be it the cabin crew or the flight crew.
0: To be fair, no one really knew what was happening. Pretty
1: much. Many of the passengers began to expect the worst and donned their life jackets and their oxygen masks and then wrote notes to their loved ones on whatever they could find. Terrifying. That's, yes, horrifying. Wow. Yes. The lead cabin attendant attempted to talk to the passengers through the PA system, but the system was not working. The thick smoke and low oxygen in the cabin had the passengers coughing and choking, but the masks did seem to help to some effect because they were oxygen actually flowing into their lungs. The lead cabin attendant finally retrieved a bullhorn and began talking to the passengers once they had their masks on to try to reassure them, lying in the process, saying, This is some technical difficulties. We're going to try to get through this. The first officer finally got his oxygen mask fixed on his own and donned it. The crew continued to perform the restart procedure over and over with no success. As the plane neared Jakarta, they were flying over the island again, but the captain knew that in order to get to the airport, they would have to clear a mountain range that was about 11,000 feet high. The captain also knew that without all of the engines restarted, they wouldn't make it. They decided that if they did not get the engine restarted by the time they got down to 12,000 feet, that they would turn back to sea and prepare to ditch the airplane into the ocean in the dark.
0: Yeah, but it's probably better doing that than hitting a mountain.
1: Yes. Arguably, yes. The captain finally addressed the cabin.
3: Arguably. Which did work.
1: I wouldn't take my chances. I mean, (laughs) yeah, generally better. The captain finally addressed the cabin, which did work stating that all four of their engines had stopped, in his words, and they were trying to get them started again, and that he hoped that they weren't too distressed. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It is far too late to be saying that. You
0: should have said that before the plane started going up and down.
1: Yeah, I hope you're okay.
0: (laughs) I hope you're you're not too much of a freaking out (laughs) rant.
3: Yeah, meanwhile, there's 50 people in the back writing love notes to their families
1: with writer's blog. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What do I say?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. So this is about 16 minutes after everything started. At 8.56 p.m., as the plane reached about 13,500 feet, nearing their turnaround altitude, the light streaks had cleared from the windows, and the number four engine suddenly roared back to life. What a frickin' miracle. Ta-da! The crew and the passengers were enamored, but the captain knew that it wasn't enough to keep the airplane from striking the mountains in front of them. They would still need more thrust. Luckily, a few moments later, the number three engine roared back to life as well, followed shortly by the other two engines. Suddenly, they had all four engines back. What? That is insane. How? almost unheard of that you would lose all four, and even more unheard of that you would get all four back. Now the crew knew that they would be able to make it. This was an enormous relief. Needless Can you to
0: imagine say. you're you're trying to restart, 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 and then they finally come on, you're like <gasps> we're not dying today. I mean, they were literally
1: probably about thirty seconds from turning around and heading back out to sea. Yeah. What a friggin' miracle. Wow. They informed the air traffic controller, who understood them this time without issue, that all four engines were working. They then requested an expedited ascent to clear the mountains. The air traffic controller re- granted this request, and the plane began to climb rapidly. However, as the plane reached about 15,000 feet, their target altitude, they suddenly began seeing the light on the windshield again, and the number two engine began surging again until it shut down. Oh, crap. The captain throttled back, and they immediately began descending back to 12,000 feet, where they then held altitude. The light streaks disappeared But as the flight cleared the mountain range and approached the airport, they noticed a whole different problem. What appeared to be a haze or a fog outside. They turned on the defrost, thinking maybe there was frost on the windshield, and then they turned on the windshield wipers, but they quickly realized that it was actually a totally different problem with the windows. When the captain noticed that there was a very slim area that he could see through perfectly at the very edge of his window, they realized it was something wrong with the windows, then the crew received even more horrifying news. As they got close to the airport, the air traffic controller...
2: Yeah, because at this point, it's like, you can still land the plane. Yeah, they've... Just use the glide slope.
1: Just use the instrument landing system, because right. it literally will bring the airplane all the way to the touchdown point. So they can theoretically land blind. And Jakarta is equipped with this. However, the air traffic controller reported to them that the vertical reference, for or the glide path, was not functioning for the approach well tough yes
0: you see the problem with that is the entire thing that would lead them down to the runway
1: just doesn't work is it working the thing that's supposed to lead them there blindly since the crew could not see out the windows they did the best using the airport's dme or distance measuring equipment so the dma puts out a signal and it basically can report to the airplane exactly how far they are from that point That is a specific point on the airport. And there's actually procedures for approaching the airport using step-down approach. So you descend to certain altitudes by certain distances. And you use the step-down approach to create a virtual flight glide path down to the runway. So this is what they did. And the first officer helped the captain along by shouting out their altitudes along the way. Especially as they got close to the runway. They could see the runway lights barely as they approached the ground... But they noted that their landing lights for the aircraft did not seem to be working, which is not great, because you can't see out the windows hardly at all as it is, and then you also have no light to make sure you're not going to hit anything or that you're actually going the right direction. Suddenly, the airplane touched down on the runway at Jakarta, and they slowed the airplane to a stop. What a miracle. I mean, seriously, the odds were completely stacked against them, and they managed to bring this airplane to a stop on the runway at Jakarta, blindly. Without the landing lights, and with the strange opaque windscreen issue, they were unable to taxi the airplane, so they had to shut down and deplane everybody there on the runway. When the crew exited the airplane, they were shocked at what they saw. They could see that all of the front surfaces of the airplane had been worn clean of paint and decals. The tail, the nose... The wings, the engines, everything were worn completely clean of its paint. No more paint. No more paint. However, miraculously, through all of this chaos, everyone survived without injury. Which is just insane. I mean...
0: Passengers are like, we didn't die today.
1: I mean, how many things did they go through in that situation, and they managed to come out in literally... A one in a trillion chance.
3: I think the hardest part of that is that random glimmer of hope when all four turned on. Yes. Randomly.
1: And then that, oh, crap, we're all going to die moment again when one engine starts shutting down and they're seeing lights on the window again. Yeah, and then it's right back to chaos. Yes.
2: It's a literal roller coaster. They're going up and down. Yep. Their hopes are up and down.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay.
2: So we're going to break here this time. Alright, so as Nick mentioned, when the plane landed, there were some really weird things. The windshield of the cockpit was heavily scratched, so much so that that's why they couldn't see when they were landing. Yep.
0: I mean, yeah, since also the paint was completely gone from the Oh outside. wait, so
3: the fog was the windshield just being scratched The windshield
1: yeah. was yeah. completely scratched. Wow.
0: <laughs> the wings, the
2: nose, the tail, pretty much any leading edge was stripped of paint and looked like it had been sandblasted. Oddly enough, we couldn't find anything about an official government-backed investigation, but the manufacturer of the engines, Rolls-Royce, did an
1: investigation. And it pretty much told the entire story. Yep.
2: As they took apart the engines, they found sand, rock, and dust, all very finely ground, it seemed. And it's at about that point that they realized what the heck had happened, and it was something that had never happened before. The substance that had choked the engines was volcanic ash.
3: What? (laughs) Yep.
2: Mount Galungung is a volcano 160 kilometers southeast of Jakarta and had been erupting on and off for the last three months prior to the incident and had restarted its vomitous nature the evening of the incident. Winds had pushed the ash cloud directly into the flight path. Because of how dry of a substance it is, you know, hot, can't retain moisture, It actually produced a weather phenomenon called St. Elmo's Fire, which is a luminous plasma that occurs when there's a strong electric field in the atmosphere. In this case, with the ash in the dry atmosphere, it supercharged the air and caused the light that everyone had seen outside the plane. Such a phenomenon is usually a sign of imminent lightning, you know, when you have that prickly feeling in the air during a dry lightning storm. This same electric field is also what caused the disruption and interference with the radio. But how did it cause the engines to shut down on the mechanical level? Well, an engine works by sucking in air, pressurizing it, adding fuel, and combusting it out the back to produce thrust. The combustion part is around 3600 degrees Fahrenheit or 2000 degrees Celsius, and the melting temperature of ash is more like 2500 degrees Fahrenheit or thirteen to 1400 degrees Celsius. So the ash actually became a liquid molten goo. I'm not sure if it's lava. I'm not a geologist. Don't quote me on this. So the engine got choked and it had too much fuel and not enough oxygen. So flames started erupting from the back in long streams before eventually shutting down. But once the gooey substance had time to cool off, it became brittle and just broke off the engine parts, allowing the engines to restart.
1: Which is so incredible. Really is. Wild.
2: And that's all I got.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty much the whole of what happened. The whole reason they didn't produce a report for this accident was because nobody was hurt, and the airplane, here's the incredible part, returned to service. Not only did it return to service, it flew a very long time. The airplane wasn't retired until 2004. Wow. Jeez. It flew with several more airlines between British Airways and its retirement. So... There was really no need to really produce a report on this, although I could argue the opposite because of...
2: Well, and we've covered reports of things where no one died, airplane returned to service. I don't know what was the determining factor that said, hey, we don't need to do an investigation.
1: I mean, arguably to me, this is one of the craziest incidents we've ever covered where the odds were so stacked against them like nothing else we've even talked about, and yet they made it completely unscathed. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about an incredible crew and a phenomenal airplane that put them back on the ground in the worst kind of situation. So, it's really unbelievable, and to me, yes, they should have had a report. Also, be it that this was really the first time anything like this had happened in the aviation industry, this is a key learning moment for aviation. Yeah, wouldn't a report on this set precedence? Yes, absolutely. And... This still ended up being a very, very, very well-known high-key incident anyways. And it
2: did become a learning experience.
1: It did become a learning experience all on its own, just purely out of being so insane. (laughs) So that's why, really, ultimately, there should have been a report, but there wasn't. So.
0: That's where I come in. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about what happened afterward, even though there's no report. So I'm just going to read directly from this Wikipedia page, because I don't think I could word this any better than how they worded it on here. If you want to look it up, it'll be on the website, but Volcanic Ash and Aviation Safety. Plumes of volcanic ash near active volcanoes are a flight safety hazard. No, No, really.
3: (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I would not have
0: known that.
1: (laughs) I mean, yes. Well, they didn't, so. They sure didn't.
0: Especially for night flights, which this was. Volcanic ash is hard and abrasive and can quickly cause significant wear to propellers and turbo compressor blades and scratch cockpit windows, impairing visibility. The ash contaminants, fuel and water systems can jam gears and make engines flame out, which it did in this case. Its particles have low melting point, so they melt in engine's combustion chamber. Then the ceramic mass sticks to the turbine, fuel nozzles, and combustors, which can lead to a total engine failure, which Christy had talked about. So in 1991, the aviation safety industry decided to set up the Volcanic Ash Advisory Centers, or VAACs. For liaison between meteorologists and volcanologists and the aviation industry. So people who study all these things and the people who have the planes fly. There's a connection there. Yep. Prior to 2010, aircraft engine manufacturers had not defined specific particle levels above which they considered engines at risk. Airspace regulators took the general approach that if ash concentration rose above zero, they considered airspace unsafe and consequently closed it. So that you wouldn't fly through volcanic ash and have these problems. The cost of air travel disruption in Europe after the volcanic eruption in 2010 forced aircraft manufacturers to... Specify limits on how much ash they considered acceptable for a jet engine to ingest without damage. In April, the UK C- CAA, a con- in conjunction with engine manufacturers, set the safe upper limit of ash density to two milligrams per cubic meter of air space.
1: How they measure that without flying through it, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I guess you could yeah, send where do, a- you,
3: where do you get volcanic ash?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could send you can't a research. on
3: that. <laughs> Jeff Bezos isn't going to hook you up with some volcano. I feel like I just saw
0: someone, like, pick something up and, like, throw it in an engine. Like they do with uh, the frozen chickens.
1: Yeah. For bird strikes. Yeah. Well, and then, I'm sorry, but, like, how do you know on any given day that that or less is happening in the sky above a volcano? Like...
2: It's too hot to just, like, send up a weather balloon because...
1: Right, so what do you do? You fly a research airplane through it and hope it doesn't fall out of the sky. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) I'm sorry, that doesn't seem like the best idea. But I do, I, I mean, I understand why. Because, yes, in 2010, most of Western Europe was shut down for all air travel for weeks because of the volcano in Iceland. Yeah. It was a huge deal because you're talking about some of the busiest airports on Earth couldn't even operate for weeks. Yeah. These airlines, some of the biggest airlines in the world couldn't operate. So they were losing money hand over fist because yeah. they couldn't operate. Tough. From May yeah.
0: 2010, the CAA revised the safe limit upwards to 4 milligrams per cubic meter of airspace. So they raised it to 4 huh. milligrams. To minimize further disruption that this and other volcanic eruptions could cause, the CAA created a new category of restricted airspace called a time-limited zone. Airspace categorized as TLZ is similar to airspace under severe weather conditions in that restriction should be of a short duration. However, a key difference with TLZ airspace is that airplanes must produce certificates of compliance for aircraft that they want to enter these areas. Any airspace where ash density exceeds four milligrams per cubic meter is prohibited airspace. So, that's all I'm gonna read from that. There's a few other talking points I have. So, big takeaways from this, okay? Pilots now know the signs of flying into an ash cloud. Yes. So, if it's not on the radar and you're seeing St. Elmo's fire, you're probably in an ash cloud. It's time to turn around. It's time to not be in that ash cloud anymore. Volcanic ash clouds don't appear on weather radar because they're dry and don't have water. And it's sensed by radar. They don't have water, so they can't be pictured. (laughs) Yeah. Geologists now communicate with airlines directly. So, they, you know,
1: communications. uh, When a volcano erupts, which, to be honest, also nowadays... That information travels much faster and is much more available. Anyways, we're talking about a time without the internet and all these things. So it actually took them two days, the crew, two days to find out even about the volcano, which is why the crew was so baffled when they found out. They're like, "I'm sorry, what was happening? How did I not know yeah, that? Why was I not days part in of the this?" Dark and then yeah. you
3: drop a bomb. Hey, by the way, this was volcanic ash.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. It's very different now. It'd be much more obvious information, and yes, now there's a lot more control internationally about when something like that is happening, where can you fly, when can you fly through it, that kind of thing. So it's really important that those things change, obviously, because it nearly brought down an enormous airplane. But by incredible strokes of luck, that didn't happen, and we got the opportunity to learn from it without the loss of life.
0: Right, so they knew what happened And they didn't have to fish the airplane out of the water.
1: Right. And they had a whole airplane to study, basically. And they managed to put it back into service. But some of the pieces, because the engines were worthless, they had to replace them. Some of the engine parts actually can be found at the uh, Auckland Museum. Some of the damaged pieces of the airplane can be found at the Auckland Museum. And you can actually see the damage that was caused by the ash as it went through the engines we need to go yes i mean i would love to go to new zealand anytime but yes miranda would hate that flight Oh, i'd be fine why
0: I, I don't like flights that are longer than two hours because you've
1: long. never done it on a good airline
0: you keep saying that <laughs> i really <laughs> I, mean it. and i keep <laughs> saying
1: that you're probably right but <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh so we've talked before about how my one and like big international flight was to ireland leo was my pillow
0: yeah
3: Yes, I was also shorter then, so I don't think it would work quite as well now.
1: You've also never been on a wide body internationally, and you guys have only been on a wide body once, so and you've so, never have. No, that's fine.
3: Sounds like fun. It is, as long <laughs> as we don't fly through volcanic ash. Yeah. Yes, I mean that's that's a big key. Thankfully, things like that don't happen. You know here what? Very you know often. what? Parts of that experience did sound fun.
1: Like, I mean, what? The roller coaster? Like, the silent roller first coaster?
3: First of all, St. Elmo's Fire looks fantastic. I know we have, like, Google Images put up, and I'm looking at it, and it looks awesome. It looks beautiful. I would love to see that. Yes. But,
1: I mean, if you were flying through that. a thunderstorm and you know what that is,
3: yeah, probably yeah,
1: yeah. okay. Pretty cool. When it happens out of nowhere... Uh, a little freaky, right,
3: right. <laughs> but now 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 I know i i can I can make suggestions to the cockpit
0: <laughs> That's where you hit the flight attendant button. Hey, can we uh go through a thunderstorm so I can see some say em yeah. fire thanks
1: or if you're seeing it, but there's no clouds
0: Ding. hey uh hey,
1: I just wanted to say we should turn around now
0: <laughs> I think we're in some ash yeah. It's just
2: like how if it's really cold outside, like snowing, and you don't get de-iced, it's like ping the flight attendant. Hey, can we go get de-iced, please? I've seen too many air
1: disasters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So another thing they never brought up, but I thought was also interesting, was that big 50-knot difference between the two airspeed indicators. So I'm guessing
2: a pitot tube was plugged. Yes, that would
1: be exactly what's happening, is one was starting to plug up.
2: I just thought it was interesting
1: that they didn't talk to that at all.
2: For reference, a pitot tube is a tube that sticks out of the plane, and it reads airspeed based on a difference of pressure. So yep. if it gets plugged up for any reason, like um ash or ice, yep. hashtag Air France 447, then your airspeed indicator is either unreliable or straight up just not working.
1: Yes. And that is completely true. So in this case, yes, they definitely had a plugged pitot tube, or plugging pitot tube, because of the difference. So what I wondered was, did at some point it not... were they not plugged anymore? Because they managed to land the airplane okay. What speed did they use for that? I have no idea. So... I would love to know more about that, and there's probably more. I know there's a book on this that was written, and I would be actually really interested to read it.
2: We actually didn't even know we were covering this flight till yesterday, and we're like, s***.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'd love to read the book, and I'd love to see a little bit more about this. I really wish there was a report on this, just so we could have some more detailed information. But yeah. it is pretty crazy. And the crew, as well as a lot of the passengers, have actually been very open about the experience, obviously, since they survived.
2: One of the passengers... Betty Tootel, or Toodle?
0: Doodles.
1: I don't know.
2: I don't know. She wrote a book about the accident entitled All Four Engines Have Failed. You know, pretty on the nose right there. Yep. And had actually managed to trace more, about 200 of the 247 passengers for interviews.
1: Yeah, wow. that's incredible. I mean, really, most of them have been pretty open about it because it's an incredible experience.
2: And she married a fellow passenger.
1: Also incredible so well, would I mean, you look at that
2: he was seated in the row in front of her she later noted quote the 28th december 2006 marks the start of the our 14th year of honeymoon and on the 24th june 2007 many passengers and crew will no doubt gather to celebrate the 25th anniversary of our mid-air adventure end quote they do get together. call it <laughs> i know they do get together every year to celebrate the anniversary i think why dude i don't know
0: because they, didn't they survived die? yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, because they survived they're like look we didn't die guys
2: in the air disaster's episode they talked about like forming a group called like the gliders of Galungung or something like that and that they were all like immediately members all of the passengers
1: yeah so yes they they did such a thing but also very important actually is the crew received many commendations and awards because of their actions
2: okay again deserved reading- uh, yeah, again, Very. reading from the Wikipedia. The crew received various awards, including the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air from Captain Moody and medals from the British Airline Pilots Association. Uh, the engineless flight was entered in the Guinness Book of w- World Records as the longest glide in a non purpose built aircraft, but this record was later broken by Air Canada Flight 143 in 1983. Some of you uh, might know that. It is in our (laughs) schedule. It is. It is called the uh, Gimli Gimli Glider. Glider.
1: We'll get there one day. It's in May. It's a very, very famous incident. A lot of aviators know very uh, much
2: about it. Obviously, it glided. To Gimli. (laughs) And then it was broken again in 2001 by Air Transat Flight 236.
1: Yikes. Also Canadian.
0: Same cause, too.
1: Get it together, Canada. We'll talk about that someday.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well... That was British Airways Flight Nine. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. To
1: this crazy story. I know this won't be the longest episode there is, but man, was that a roller coaster! Red. Wild. It was yeah. wild. Yeah.
0: Thanks for joining us, Eel. Of course. All right. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
0: This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song
2: was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
2: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.